dying and rising again. Lord, I think of the first, Lord, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I don't live. But Christ lives within me, Lord. Help us to live in the reality of that truth, Lord, that this is not our life, Lord, but Good morning. As we begin, let's turn to the book of Philippians. The theme that we've been following thus far is in Christ. We have seen that in Christ is a thread that is woven throughout this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. We have learned that in Christ, we can become children of God. This is when we turn to Christ in faith and baptism, faith and repentance. And in Christ, we also learn that the gospel is central. We start with the gospel as we are a gospel-saturated church with a gospel-centered message in Christ. We have learned that the church functions in a healthy manner with pastors and with deacons with the pastors as servant leaders whose purpose is to preach, teach, pray, and shepherd the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. While the deacons minister in the areas of helps, benevolence, and service, helping members of the congregation with the physical needs that they need. In Christ, we have learned that unity is key amongst a congregation. We are called to put others above ourselves because we are, have given our lives to Christ. We learn that in Christ, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts so that now we can pour that same love out on others, the same love that we experience in Christ. And finally, we've also learned that in Christ, doctrine or God's teachings are paramount for us to know and to study and obey. At the family church, we need to be students of the Word of God. So today as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we come before you recognizing how inadequate we are. Recognizing the sins that we commit daily that we struggle with, Father. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that your grace continues to be poured out on sinners like us as we struggle with loving others, as we struggle with loving you, Father. Continue to change us by your Spirit. Help your Spirit to mightily empower us, Father. Convict us, encourage us by what we hear from you today. 
We love you and praise you through Christ's name. Amen. So let me start by telling you I have two sons. I know I talk about them a lot. Um, Luke, who is three, and Silas, who is one and a half. And Silas, the little brother, always wants to do what big brother is doing. If Luke plays with trains, well, guess what? Silas is dropping whatever he's doing, and he starts playing with trains. If Luke goes to the big boy potty, which, yes, he is finally almost potty trained at three. We're thankful for that. Then Silas suddenly is already almost interested in doing the same thing. If Luke kicks the dog, then Silas tries to kick our little dog, Mocha, also. And if you're a member of PETA, please don't email me or call me because Mocha's doing just fine. Trust me. But I'm getting off topic. We're trying to help Luke see that it is a responsibility for him to be an example to his little brother, Silas. And as we recognize, as we ourselves recognize, as my wife and I recognize that we are here to glorify God, we want him to understand that, but also understand that he has little eyes watching him all the time. Let me ask you, whose example are you following today? Paul has taught us many truths throughout this letter thus far. Paul talked about biblical doctrines in very practical ways. And now Paul turns the lens back on himself. And today where we will be is Philippians 3, verse 17. Philippians 3, verse 17. And yes, we're going to get through the whole verse. You're excited, Casey, I know. Um, verse 17. And we're going to do parts of it because I don't want to go too fast. <laughs> and it says this. Join with others in following my example, brothers. Join with others in following my example, brothers. Why does Paul tell the Philippians to follow his example? What is it about Paul that others should follow him? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Keep your finger in Philippians 3.17. But turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1 Corinthians 11.1. And Paul gives us the reason. He says this, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Christ is the reason why Paul tells them to follow him. Paul doesn't say, follow my example because I'm a great leader, nor does he say, follow my example because I'm well-educated, nor does he say, follow my example because I have a magnetic personality. No, it was because he was following Christ. How many of us can honestly say we're following Christ today? Or to say it another way, how many of us can honestly say we are being obedient and faithful to the word of God? For example, what did you watch last night on the TV? Or what did you watch or look at on your computer screen? Or how are you treating your spouse? How are you talking to your spouse? Because when rubber meets the road, how we're following Christ is revealed in how we're living our lives. But truth be known, we don't have Christ and we don't have Paul in the flesh to follow. So what should we follow? What gives us clarity? 
What gives us clarity when we're struggling with depression? What gives us clarity when we are grieving over the loss of a loved one? What gives us clarity when we're controlled by fear? What gives us clarity when we're having marital issues? What gives us clarity when we are in financial ruins? What gives us clarity when life is going good and we stop depending on Christ? What gives us clarity? What do you turn to? Do we turn to secular psychology, which most of the churches went after? Do we turn to Dr. Phil, or or, I don't know if Oprah's still on TV, but she used to be, turn to Oprah? No, no. We turn to God's Word. The Word of God gives us everything we need for every situation that we encounter. Truth number one. Truth number one. Following Christ means that we follow God's Word. Following Christ means that we follow God's Word. Turn with me to Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. And it says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Wow, is God's word powerful? The word of God changes us from the inside out. It goes to the deepest part of us and convicts us, encourages us, and ultimately changes us. But you may be wondering exactly how does that happen? How does the word of God actually do that? Well, turn with me to Ephesians 6.17. Ephesians 6.17. And no, we're not going to go through all 66 of the Bible today, 66 books of the Bible today, but we're going to hit a few of them. And it says this, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let me read that again. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It gives us this picture that the word of God as a weapon, the Holy Spirit uses to penetrate and change us. So as I'm reading the word of God, the Holy Spirit is using the words that are going into my heart and using that to penetrate my heart like a sword. We learn that God's word changes our hearts because it is the sword of the spirit. So we read God's word, put others above yourself, and all of a sudden I'm pierced to the heart. And I'm like, oh, because I recognize I've been selfish in so many ways. I remember just being selfish towards my wife and so selfish that I remember I was trying to just get my kids to be quiet because I wanted peace. I wasn't doing it because I wanted them to glorify God. I just wanted peace in my home. So I disciplined my child. And all that convicts me because I'm not putting others before myself because I really love them. I realize I'm putting myself above them. And it pierces our hearts Like a sword, that's what the Word of God does. Or we open up God's Word where it says, devote yourself to prayer. And the Holy Spirit actually, it's encouraging to us because guess what we've been working on in our life? Our prayer life. We don't do just the nominal prayers of when we eat or when we go to sleep, even though that is important. But we're wrestling with God in prayer. We're getting on our knees. We're praising God. We're honoring God. We're thanking God. We're, we're confessing our sins before God on a daily basis. We're giving everything up to him. And we've been working on this. So our heart is encouraged by the Holy Spirit. 
The words of Scripture are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is why God's Word convicts us, encourages us, teaches us, and ultimately transforms us into the likeness of Christ. Are we filtering our marriages, training our children, and walking individually in the fear and admonition of the Lord because we are following the Word of God today? The Holy Spirit works in our lives as we study and obey God's Word. But what should drive us? What should motivate us? What is the motivator behind studying God's word? Truth number two. Truth number two. We follow God's word because we are most satisfied in Christ. We follow God's word because we are most satisfied in Christ. That means we love Christ above all else. We're living our lives Centered on Christ, our motto is like Paul's, who said what? In Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. And it's not this, oh, to live is Christ. As if following Christ is some drudgery that we have to bear. Many of us come to God's word with this heart of bondage that says this, oh, I have to read God's word, or oh, I have to, I know, I need to pray more, or man, I know I need to start fasting. I just don't have time for that. As if we're in bondage by reading God's word, by praying, by fasting, by serving one another. No, brothers and sisters, no. We get to read God's word. We get to pray. We get to fast. It reminds me of trying to get my son to eat his vegetables, honestly. All of a sudden, we put a bowl of green vegetables in front of him, and he is like, you think we're torturing him. He makes these horrible faces in agony and suffering. Do we read our Bibles, pray, serve others, because we are passionate about Christ today? Or do we do it from a heart filled with guilt? Almost a necessary evil that we just have to bear and endure So our consciences are cleared. Reading God's word, praying, fasting, serving others should be joys in our lives because they deepen, they strengthen, and build our relationship with Christ. David in Psalm 119, 16 says this, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And a few verses lower than that, he says, your statutes, which that word for statutes could mean commands, instructions, are my delight. They are my counselors. The word here for delight could be translated as happy or light-hearted joy. So David is saying, I look forward with a joyful expectation to studying and obeying God's word. Is that you today? Is that you today? Is that me today? We should take such joy in God's word because we treasure our relationship and fellowship with Christ above all else. John Piper says it like this. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Let me read that to you again. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Or Augustine said it like this. 
Oh God, to know you is life. To serve you is freedom. Serve in freedom in the same sentence. To praise you is the soul's joy and delight. Both of these quotes reveal a heart that delights, enjoys, desires, do the right things before God because they're passionate for Christ. What would happen if, if our relationship with Christ resembled these quotes? If our true joy was Christ and he satisfied us completely, how would this change the way we are living today? Are we most satisfied in Christ today at the family church? Or do we live for false substitutes to satisfy us? And false substitutes could include a cadre of different things, but I'll just give a few of them. Our jobs, our marriages, our children, our spouses, our riches, our entertainment, our eating, our sports. Paul Tripp says this, could it be that desire for a good thing has become a bad thing because that desire has become a ruling thing? And you may be wondering, when is a good desire actually a ruling thing? Well, again, it's very easy. It's very easy. When those good things like marriage rise up above my passion and zeal for Christ. When my children rise up above my relationship to Christ. And this is a very serious offense against God. The Bible calls it idolatry. Anything that we love more than Christ becomes an idol. I don't care what it is. Anything that we love more than Christ becomes an idol. John Calvin referred to the heart as an idol factory. Our hearts follow, worship, and focus on anything above Christ. It distracts us and causes us to go all a different way all the time. Are, are we today chasing false substitutes? Or are we fully satisfied in Christ? Because truth be known, we cannot be fully satisfied in Christ and be fully satisfied in other things and acting like those things are as important as Christ. If they are, we're going to either lose our satisfaction in Christ and it's going to become an idol in our life. Truth number three. Truth number three. Following Christ makes God bigger and self smaller. Let me read that again. Following Christ makes God bigger and self smaller. Many walk into the counseling office with a large view of self. And when I say a large view of self, I mean an incessant focus on self. So if someone comes in with very negative thoughts about self, we usually call that what? Self, low self-esteem, right? And they're thinking, man, I can't do anything right. I struggle. I failed all things. I'm going to faint when I preach a sermon and all and on and on and on, right? They go. They say all these different things, right? Um, who are they focused on? Self. And likewise, someone who thinks constantly, I am great. God's so lucky to have a guy like me on his side. I'm like the Apostle Paul. I can do all things. If I just think it in my mind, I will get it. 
Have we heard that before? Who, what, do they have what we call high self-esteem, right? Who are they focused on? Self. Either case, low self-esteem or high self-esteem are both appalling to God because they focus on self. We naturally want to be the main actors of our world. I don't know if you guys realize this. We look at others, including God, and place him as a character in our play. And it gets worse because we even have tried to do good things, but often they're tarnished by wrong motives. What is your motivation behind your good works today? I read my Bible because it's going to help my marriage. I fast because I really need God to act on my behalf. I serve my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because it really makes me look good to others. These good deeds are more about serving, more about God serving us because we're doing it with wrong motives. We're not doing it for God's glory. Guess whose glory we're doing it for? Ourselves. God is not a cosmic Santa Claus nor a genie in the bottle for us to call the shots for him. How arrogant it is for us to expect God to advance our selfish agendas. Especially when we really think we're doing it for him. Are you obeying God because you want to glorify God? Or because you think your good deeds are going to better your life? Have your best life now. Tell the first century Christians that were eaten by lions that. God's word speaks sanity. Thanks be to God's word that speaks sanity into the craziness we sometimes think in our minds. Turn with me to Psalm 66, 1 through 8. Psalm 66, 1 through 8. And it says this. Shout for joy to God. All the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious, say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies cringe before you, all the earth bows down to you, they sing praise to you, they sing the praises of your name, come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind, he turned the sea into dry land, they passed through the waters on foot, come let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praises be heard. Wow, how that sort of rattles our cage when we're focused on our own ways and how everything needs to be. All of a sudden, we read this and it's like shakes us up and we recognize, wait a minute, we're here for God's glory, not not our own. We recognize that our life is about God and our lives are here to honor, to praise, to magnify and glorify our sovereign, huge God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink or Whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. We learn that even in the mundane moments of life, God tells us, make it about me, not you. 
Even when we're eating and drinking, we're going out to eat after this. Remember who this is for. Remember you're supposed to be eating and drinking to my glory, not your own. Think about it. If we can eat and drink to God's glory, the little things like that, those little mundane moments, what happens in the rest of the moments of our life? Is God's view expanding in your life today? Following God's word is not about our happiness or our self-improvement, but a passion, a love, a zeal, a desire to please and honor God. Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. The more we focus on Christ, the less we will focus on ourselves. The more we focus on Christ, the less we are in bondage to ourselves. Our view of God grows as our view of self shrinks. This reminds me of a time when my son, Lukey, this was a few months ago, so he was still three, looked at me and said, Daddy, are you small? And I'm thinking, what kind of three-year-old asks his daddy if he is small? I mean, I don't know about you, but I always thought my dad was like the greatest, the smartest, the coolest. He was like my biggest superhero. And my little son, Luke, at three years old, already has me pegged as short. Is that possible, by the way? I need some counsel on this. We need to talk about this right now, but I know we have to move on, so I will not continue on that. But my point is that Lukey is right. I am small, but in a different way. Well, not really in a different Well, yes, I am short, but I'm saying he's not thinking about the spiritual way that I'm trying to explain right now. But I sometimes make myself the center of all things. And my view of self is so ridiculously huge. As I want everybody, I have my own universe, and I want everybody to follow suit in my own universe. Wife, follow me. Do what I say every moment, and when you don't, I'm going to get upset with you. Is that okay? It's not, right? It's not. But in reality, I should be so focused and in awe of Christ that he is what I'm zealous for. And in return, I shrink as my life is centered, wrapped up, hidden in Christ. Are we in awe of Christ today? Or are we in awe of ourselves? Who is at the center of our universe? Is it, and let's bring it down to our home. Who's at the center of our homes? Is it? You or is it God? Who's at the center of our marriages? Is it you or is it God? Who's at the center of our parenting? Is it you or is it God? Who's at the center of your workplace? Is it you or is it God? In conclusion, we're going to finish the rest of this verse, by golly. And we're at verse 17 still, in Philippians 3, verse 17. And in conclusion, Paul goes on and says, Take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Paul ends this verse by saying, Remember those within your own congregation who are living correctly. Because we've got to remember here, Paul is talking to the church at Philippi. He's talking to a local church. What a blessing it is when we actually have people living out the word of God in our lives, right? What a blessing it is to be able to watch them live life and take notes and observe how they do that so then we can 
follow suit and follow their example. I probably should not admit this up here, but I'm going to. When my wife and I got married, part of our honeymoon we spent with my uncle and aunt. But I have a reason why we did this. We decided that we wanted to spend time with my uncle and aunt. We were actually in Florida for part of our honeymoon. And then we decided to drive all the way to Pennsylvania, where my uncle and aunt lived. And we did this because we wanted to observe and take notes on how to to have a God-centered marriage and how to raise godly children. They understood their roles. They walked in them as a married couple. And we wanted to do the same. It was a blessing, though, because I was able to see a man who truly loved his wife like Christ loved the church. It was like I was watching Ephesians 5 being played out in real life as I watched this man love his wife. I saw a spiritual leader who not only loved his wife, but he led his family in the word of God. He was spiritually leading his homes. Like all of us who are men are supposed to do in our houses. That's what he did. It was an amazing thing to watch. And I will tell you, I will thank God for my uncle and aunt's example. Because many of the things I learned that week, I am now implementing in my own marriage, in my own parenting, and even as a leader, servant leader, I will say, in the church. When people are living out God's word, it brings God's word to life. All of a sudden, doctrine that we see up here is now played out in our daily lives. It is an awesome thing to see. What about you? Are you following God's example today? Discipleship is about us laying our lives bare before others and showing them how to follow Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be as a local church. And at times, yes, At times, yes, we will struggle, we will fail, and we will sin. We are not the Lord Jesus Christ, but in a community that loves one another and is willing to confront one another because we love each other so much, that's how this works. We are vulnerable to one another, we share with one another, and we're willing to speak the truth in love to one another. That's called biblical confrontation, and it's a loving thing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Discipline helps us as believers. We need to be a community like that who is loving each other and confronting one another. And as we do that, we fall more in love with Christ. And as we fall more in love with Christ, we fall more in love with one another. This is the goal of the local church. Our mission statement, everyone knows it here. We are here to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all we're here to do. And let me say that's all is a really hard thing to do. As we close, I want to give you a minute to examine yourself by spending some time with the Lord and reflecting on what we have just discussed here. I will pray for us, and then we'll have probably about a minute of reflection, just some time to reflect. And Luke will come up here and just play some music softly. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we are so in awe of who you are. We recognize that the local church is about your glory and honor as we are living out 
your call for us as Christians, Father. Help us to be a church that's empowered by your Spirit, who follows Christ as Lord and Savior, and help us to implement that in our daily lives, Father. I thank you for the church here, and I thank you for all churches across the world that are doing things biblically. I ask that you empower us to work with one another, love one another, and continue to grow. We love and praise you through Christ's name. Amen. of the passage. If you just stand as you read God's word. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead your Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We guys, we want to welcome you all to come to the baptism, and so you can be dismissed to go out there and we'll continue our service out there.